Well, thank you uh, to our worship team for, for coming from Aurelia to lead us in worship this morning. It has been a blessing, and we are so grateful to, uh, to be the recipients of, of your good gifts to Christ's kingdom and to his church. Uh, today's sermon got divided into two sermons. There's just too much to cover. It really could be more than two sermons, but for your sake, we're going to do it in two instead of one. Uh, and there's going to be a, a few weeks between. So I'm going to introduce the topic today, and then we're going to come back on August 6th, two weeks in between there as well. But we're going to pick this up on August 6th. That will give you three weeks to read this statement that the elders have put together. So this is it. Does anyone have this yet? It's on the back desk, so please do get it on your way out. Elder statement on the Sabbath. Uh, just a little bit of background before I get into uh, the scripture reading and then the exposition this morning. Uh, why are we talking about the Sabbath? Why not? Why just sort of do what most Christians do and sort of stumble along and everybody has their own opinion and, and don't make an issue of it? Well, we're going to talk about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, you have asked us to address it. So, so this is a, an example of when there's a doctrinal issue that, that the, you, the church, would like some clarity on. And you come to us and you say, we really would like to know where we as a group can stand on this issue. And then it's up to the elders to spend time reading scripture, praying, discussing, reading books, etc. On, on this issue. So this is something, this sermon this morning has been in the works for more than half a year. It was one of the first issues doctrinally that I was asked to take a look at. And then so we did together as a church. So it's coming from that place. Uh, we are responding to, to a really excellent question. We're glad that you asked. And uh, may this be a pattern. Maybe there are other things that you would just like to know. Where do we stand on this? Or how, how ought we to understand that? And there, there are controversial issues where, where well-intentioned, uh, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians who will all one day be raised from the dead unto eternal life disagree. This is one of those issues. So, so although we are going to be giving you uh, our understanding of the scriptures on the issue of Sabbath, we are by no means saying that this is the only way that you could land on this issue. Um, there are other very sincere Christians who might come to a different conclusion. Um, but the second reason, which is kind of related to that, what I just said, that, that it's important for us to address is that this is much bigger than the Sabbath. Uh, what we had to sort through when we were coming up with our position on the Sabbath was, uh, what do we do with the law? How does the law fit in with our understanding of Christ's finished work on the cross? Uh, how does the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together? What relationship does the Old Covenant and the New Covenant have? Uh, and these are big questions. So, though we're talking about the Sabbath today and again on August 6th, what we've had to wrestle through as elders is how do we divide the word of truth? How do we understand these very big questions of biblical interpretation? What is the relationship? So although we are talking about the Sabbath uh, today and again on August 6th, and you can read about it between now and then, uh, there are principles in the way in which we have come to this conclusion that will help you to put the testaments together to understand law and grace, to see the finished work of Christ. And, and so the shadow of this sermon is very, very big, which is why hopefully over the next two or three weeks as you're wrestling through this yourself, maybe you have to go back and listen to this message again. Uh, definitely read the position or the statement that we have published. And then Send us emails, uh, questions. Say, well, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you said this, and what about that? And I, I'm struggling to see where you're coming up with this. And, you know, I was raised in this kind of a tradition, and, and this is kind of uncomfortable for me. And just, if we can just love one another and trust one another 
and know that you know, we're all trying to arrive at the truth together, then this could be a really, really positive experience for the church. And then on August 6th, it'll be a little bit of a shorter message, but every time I say that, it's just as long. <laughs> so we'll see. Uh, but hopefully a little bit shorter message, and we're going to have a Q&A. And it would be great if you emailed some, some e questions in advance, and then I'll ask your permission if that, that can sort of prime us to discuss these things. You can have sort of a well-thought-out uh, answer. So that's what we're doing. This is exciting. This is, this is doing theology together, which is so important for the church to do because, in fact, it is the church that is the, the, the safe keeper of the truth. And so we want to have this dialogue with you. And we want it to be multifaceted, back and forth. We want it to be constructive, edifying, healthy, exciting, and all of these things. Having said all of that, the question before us this morning is this. Should we keep the fourth commandment? Let's read the fourth commandment. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. As you're looking for your place, would you please stand? Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20 is where you find the Ten Commandments, and we are going to read the fourth commandment. And the question is, should we keep the fourth commandment? Exodus chapter 20, uh, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That is the fourth commandment. Let's pray. Lord, as we look into these questions, there are, there are some big questions that need to be answered in order to answer uh, the question put before us today, which is should we keep the fourth commandment? God, I pray for your, your grace in our lives that we may dialogue on this issue in a way that is uh, good for your local church, that builds us up, that, that draws us closer to you. So I pray for your grace and your mercy. I pray, I pray for your spirit to help us when we disagree. Uh, when we come to these controversial issues, it's almost certain that we're not going to have absolute uh, unanimity, unanimity on this, but we're going to have some slight disagreements, maybe some large disagreements. I pray that you would help us to work through them in a constructive way. I pray that you would open our minds to the gospel by looking at the fourth commandment, that by asking the question, should we keep the fourth commandment, we are really asking the question, what has been accomplished by Christ? And how do we live under his grace? So Lord, I pray that as we ask these questions, you would answer us from your word. Help me to be a, a faithful servant of your word this morning, rightly dividing the word of truth. I am humbled by uh, this task, this assignment, and I lean entirely on your grace. Oh Lord Jesus, be glorified in our midst and build us up in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. What do we do with the fourth commandment? Should we keep the Sabbath? And if so, should we keep it exactly as Israel kept it in the Old Covenant? It's a big question. Now, some would say yes. Some, as I said, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, justified saints would say yes. 
Yes, we keep the fourth commandment. Yes, we keep it the way Israel kept it, though we change it from Saturday to Sunday and we call it the Lord's Day instead of the Sabbath or whatever. There may be small things that we change, but by and large, the thrust of the Sabbath we keep. There are many, many Christians through the ages who would answer it that way. I want to give you two lines of thinking that would land there, and I'll just let you know in advance, that's not where we're going to land. We're not going to be exactly opposed to that either, but we're, it's going to be nuanced. But, but let me give you two common uh, ways of thinking that would bring someone to the conclusion that, yes, we need to keep the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath, it, pretty much the way Israel kept the Sabbath in the Old Covenant. So example number one, some would say, yes, we keep the Sabbath very much like in Old Covenant terms because the moral law of the Old Covenant is unchanging. That's the argument. Now, the argument, if we were to flesh it out, goes a little bit like this. There are 613 laws in the Old Covenant. And we can divide these 613 laws into three categories. You have the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil law. So, so this argument really leans heavily on this threefold division of the law. And, and what would be argued is that we keep the moral law unchanged. So it says, thou shalt not murder. Don't murder in the new covenant either. It says, thou shalt not steal. So don't steal. It says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't commit adultery. So it, the, the method is you take the moral law. If you can categorize a law as a moral law, you just sort of pick it up out of the old covenant and you drop it in the new covenant. And you say, well, what God was morally for and morally against in the old covenant, he is still morally for and morally against in the new covenant. And that, that is persuasive. And, and there's much truth in that. Ceremonial law, though, we don't keep the ceremonial law. This is along this line of thinking. It's not my position, but that's along this line of thinking. We don't keep the ceremonial law. So circumcision, that's a ceremonial law. The sacrificial system, that's a ceremonial law. Anything connected with the tabernacle or the temple, that's ceremonial law. Anything to do with uh, sort of the things that uh, the, priest do, the priesthood does, those are ceremonial laws. We don't bring sheep to church. We can eat bacon, stuff like that. Those are ceremonial laws. Actually, bacon is not. That's a civil law. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Uh, so the thinking goes, well, we don't keep the ceremonial law, we keep the moral law. Now this becomes a battleground, right? Is the Sabbath a moral law or a ceremonial law? We'll get back to that. This is, in my opinion, one of the weaknesses of the threefold division of the law, because it really heavily depends on your categorization of the 613 laws, and if you get a law in the wrong category, then you're in big trouble. And, and one of the things that, that people do is they say, some people say we must keep the Sabbath because it's a moral law. And other people who agree with the framework of the threefold law would say, no, we don't keep it because it's a ceremonial law. We'll get back to that. The third division in the threefold law is the civil law. And we say that that's just for Israel. God gave certain laws just for Israel. So the clean and unclean would be one of those. That, that is a... Uh, civil law. That was for Israel. So they have clean and unclean. Now that, that the gospel's available to Gentiles as well, uh, Peter, get up and kill. Nothing is unclean anymore. So that's just for Israel. It's not for the church. Again, I disagree with that interpretation, which that's a whole other sermon. Um, but uh, you've heard pieces of that from me already. Uh, so another example of just for Israel law would be don't cut your hair. In certain ways, don't trim your beard, don't mix fabric, stuff like that. That's civil law, or, or the judicial law, that's civil law, that's just for Israel. And again, maybe somebody would disagree with how I've categorized these laws. Again, a weakness, I think, of the threefold law. You've got to make sure that you categorize the laws properly. Otherwise, the way you keep or not keep certain laws is dramatically impacted and affected. So... Having divided, though, the law into these three parts, really, the only thing that the new covenant carries over from the old covenant, according to this line of thinking, is the moral law. 
So step two in this argument is, well, the Ten Commandments summarize the moral law. So that, that's the argument, right? You, of course the Sabbath is a moral law and not a ceremonial law because it's the fourth commandment. That, that's the thinking. So, so why would God have nine moral laws and then for, in fourth place tuck a ceremonial law? Doesn't make sense. And again, that, that is persuasive if, if you buy into and require the threefold law, which, by the way, nowhere in Scripture do we hear that the law is to be divided into three categories. So therefore, though, according to this line of thinking, you keep the Sabbath as an unchanging moral law because it's the fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments which summarize the moral law within the Old Covenant. I've already alluded to some of the problems that I see with this approach. Let me just give you two more definitively. And I, I did mention this. But the first one is this. I think that the weakness of this approach primarily is the threefold division of the law. I have not found anywhere in the Bible that says these 412 laws are ceremonial, these 100 are civil, and these 10 are moral. So there's a lot of emphasis on us to rightly categorize the law, with which we're not even that familiar with, if we're being honest. So what if we've missed one? So nowhere in the Bible that I have seen does the law get divided into three categories. And I think if there was ever a time when this would have happened, it would have been on the Sermon on the Mount. So open your Bibles to Matthew 5. I want you to see what Jesus says about the law. If there ever there was a time for Jesus to say, oh, by the way, we're, we're about to transition into a new covenant. And although I wasn't very clear in the old covenant which laws were moral and which ones were ceremonial and which ones were civil, I want to just clear that up before we get into the new covenant because I'm expecting that you're going to keep the moral law and let the rest sort of fall away. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he does the exact opposite. So Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. And just notice how emphatic Jesus is. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did Jesus divide the law up into three categories and say, uh, I have come to reinforce the moral law and the rest can fall away? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Do not for a moment. Not even for a moment think that I have come to abolish any of the law or the prophets. Now, what I hear Jesus saying is um, all 613 laws are operative in the new covenant. That's what I hear him saying. In fact, he says not one iota, not a dot. That, that's the vocalization, the little punctuations in the language, smallest pieces of the Hebrew language. None of that's going to pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Has heaven and earth passed away? Are we living in the new heavens and the new earth? We're not. So, therefore, I don't feel comfortable saying we have to keep the moral law but not the ceremonial law or the civil law. I just don't feel comfortable with that. So rather than me being what's called antinomian, because I'm going to land and say we don't keep 
the Sabbath. We don't keep the fourth commandment the way old covenant Israel kept it. And the charge that would be leveled against me would be you're antinomian, which means nomos is law. Anti means against. You are against the law. I just want you to hear right now, I am the opposite of antinomian. I am for the law. I, I am so for the law that I am for the ceremonial law, and I am for the civil law, and I am for the moral law. All of it. All of it has to come into the new covenant. Now, you say, well, then what's the problem? Just let's keep the, the fourth commandment as is. Let's just, one day in seven, nobody works, so on and so forth. Well, there's a problem with that. Jesus says, look at verse 17. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. But, this is important, I have come to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means that in some way, every single one of the 613 Old Covenant laws are incomplete without Jesus. Uh, they are anticipatory. There's something about each law that serves a function to help us to understand the person, the mission, the work of Christ. What that means, though, is when Jesus comes to fulfill them, he changes them somehow. He doesn't abolish them, but he fills them up. So, so what I want you to see here is uh, the movement is not choose which laws to carry over and keep practicing them the same way, but every single law of the old covenant must be filled up with Christ. And when you fill up each law, it changes the way that we uh, live it out. If you think of each law as, as a chalice or a cup, if you think of the old covenant law as just a little sip, I'm going to use wine because it's biblical liquid, a little sip of wine in the bottom of that cup, that's like the old covenant law. It's shallow, it's anticipatory. It is in keeping with the filled up law of the new covenant. But then Jesus comes and he fills up each cup until it is full and overflowing. And now Jesus says, I don't want you to keep the old covenant anticipatory shallow surface level of the law. I want you to keep the fullness of the law. And then... Like any good preacher, and he is the ultimate preacher, he gives us some illustrations. He's like, okay, let me just show you what I'm talking about. You have heard it said, but now I say to you. You have heard it said, but now I say to you. You have heard it said, and now I say to you. And what Jesus is doing right after he gives this statement, his sermon really is about what does it mean for Jesus to fill up the law. And then he gives us six examples. I would suggest that those are six examples out of 613 and, and what Jesus is giving us there is a pattern, uh, a hermeneutic. A hermeneutic is an interpretive strategy. It's a way for us to get our heads around what we need to do with the law. So murder. You've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Now I say to you, don't be angry. So what, what Jesus did was the old covenant, just don't kill anybody. The new covenant, let's fill that law up. Don't be angry because murder comes from an angry heart. Do you see how the difference? Adultery. Don't commit adultery. That's old covenant. So as long as you can sort of restrain your body, you're keeping the old covenant law. But now I say to you, says Jesus, don't look lustfully. Oh, man, he just filled that up, didn't he? Third, he says, divorce. In the old covenant, you have hard hearts. You're not regenerate. So I permit you to have a divorce, but now I say to you, because of, the, of all that's happened with the Holy Spirit, the extra advantages we have in the new covenant, don't get divorced. Now, I, that's sensitive. I, I appreciate it. There's much grace, right? We're all, we're all going to, well, I mean, we're all going to be angry. We're all, we're all going to lust. 
Uh, some of us are going to get divorced, so there's grace. But what, we're, what I'm showing you is the way in which Jesus is filling up the law. Fourth, in the Old Covenant, there was provision for when you take an oath, make sure you keep your oath and all these sorts of things. But now I say to you, don't even take an oath. Now, that's a really hard one to understand. When Jesus fills up the law when it comes to oaths, he seems like he's abolishing it. But what he says is just let your yes be yes and your no be no. See, under the old covenant, you had to take an oath. Why? Because are you trustworthy? In the new covenant, you still keep that law by always doing what you say. So it looks like he's abolishing it, but he's not. Uh, the fifth one, you've heard it say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, perfect justice. But now I say to you, have mercy. That also looks very different, doesn't it? Used to be, somebody plucks out your eye, you go and take their eye. Now I say, if somebody takes your eye, just forgive them. Because the old covenant was all about restraining evil. The new covenant is all about promoting justice and righteousness and grace and mercy and love. And at the end of the age, Jesus will bring perfect justice. Sixthly, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but now I say, love your enemy. So you see what, that's six examples. So what we need to do then is fill up the fourth commandment. What, what does that mean? Well, we'll get to that. So th I would say, because of the, the way in which Jesus treats the law, it's not good for us to say, well, let's keep the moral law unchanged. Even the moral law is changed. So let's say that, I, that we could say, well, let's stick with the threefold division of the law. Let's just agree that the Sabbath is a moral law. Even still, murder becomes anger. Adultery becomes lust. What happens to the fourth commandment in the new covenant? There's got to be some movement. I, I, would, I would doubt that 612 laws go through these, these filling up in the fourth commandment. Well, I think it was already full in the old covenant. No. So that's why I don't, that's why we have not landed uh, to say that we're going to keep the Sabbath in an old covenant kind of way. Now there's another line of thinking when it comes to the Sabbath that is very persuasive as well, which takes a very different approach than the one that we just looked at. So some would say, yes, we keep the Sabbath in a very old covenant way because the Sabbath is what is called a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance is, is something that God had established and more or less commanded before the fall of humanity. So marriage, for example. God established marriage before the fall. And he established the relationship of husbands and wives before the fall. And so there's a sense in which, no, i got to be more definitive. Marriage is not up for debate. Not, there's a sense in which, no, marriage is not up for debate. Before the fall... God established marriage to be between one man and one woman, and the husband had certain rights and responsibilities, and the wife had certain rights and responsibilities, and they just come together in a one flesh union. And so whether you're a Christian or not, that's marriage. That's a creation ordinance. So some would say, well, it's the same thing with the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. God established it before the fall, and therefore this this. Had, what all God did in the Ten Commandments was make definitive what he had already spoken about in the, uh, before the fall of humanity. Now the argument then, to fill it out, goes like this. God made the universe in six days. And then God rested on the seventh day. The fourth commandment is patterned after God's rest on the seventh day. Therefore, keeping the Sabbath law is a law that predates the fall. Therefore, we must keep the Sabbath because it's a creation ordinance. And not just Christians and Jews, but uh, secular atheists should be keeping the Sabbath, and Muslims should be keeping the Sabbath, and Hindus should be keeping the Sabbath because this is something that's common to all humanity from before the beginning of, of the fall and sin and all of that. That's the argument. Now, there's, there's a problem with this argument, though. The problem with this approach is that I do not see any biblical evidence. I don't see any 
In my notes say I see little biblical evidence, but that's just because, I, you know, I thought, well, what if I missed something? Well, I might have missed something, and you can bring that to my attention. But as of right now, I don't see any biblical evidence to suggest that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. I don't see any biblical evidence to say that God commanded people to keep the Sabbath any sooner than Exodus 16. I do not see any biblical evidence that any human being kept a one day in seven Sabbath between creation and the Ten Commandments. Well, just a few weeks before the Ten Commandments, Exodus 16. In fact, if we're being very careful Bible readers, just open up to Genesis 1, or sorry, Genesis 2. This is really important. Wait, we're, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3. But what I want you to notice, who is resting? God is resting on the seventh day of history. It's not humanity who is resting. Now, might God have said, you know, this is, this is a great day of rest, and I'm resting, and you're resting, and we're all going to rest? Maybe. I'm not saying that didn't happen. I'm, I am not saying that God didn't go to Adam and to Eve in the garden and say, I'm going to rest today. Why don't you rest today? That might have happened. The problem is the Bible doesn't tell us that that happened. So let's just take a look here. Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So chapter 1 is the six days of creation. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So definitely God is resting on day seven. There's no question. And, and what that means is he stopped creating, but he counted another day and included it in the creation week. So he ceased creating, but he added a seventh day to the week, and he said, I am going to rest on this day. And he blessed the day. Now what, what we do is we read in there, well, when God blessed the day, he must have blessed it as a Sabbath rest for everybody. Well, maybe, but that's not what it said. That's not definitive in the text. He made it holy. All that means is he set it apart. And, and what this means is God set the seventh day of creation, the seventh day of history apart from every other day. Jesus actually responds to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, look, I, and he was being accused of doing something inappropriate on the Sabbath, and he says, look, my father has been working and I've been working since the beginning of creation. Which means that this is not a perpetual Sabbath for God. So when it says God set it apart and made it holy, well, this is the only day that God has rested. That's what it means that it's holy. But he didn't say, you know what? I'm I, God, I'm going to rest every seventh day. And nowhere in the text that I see does he say, you rest every seventh day, Adam. I don't see it. So what people do is they get to the Ten Commandments, and it points back, and they say, oh, well, hmm, we're new information, but I guess God must have commanded Adam back in the garden to rest every seven days. It's just not in the text. In fact, there's one law given. Like, in, in all of the New Testament, Adam is, is told that he was given one law, and he transgressed it. Right? Not to take from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of uh, the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, I don't see, like, law number two, keep the Sabbath every seventh day. It doesn't show up until God gives it to Moses. So keeping the Sabbath, if you want to look it up, is first given in Exodus 16, verses 23 and following. 
And this is when they're, they've come out of Egypt and they're on their way to Sinai. And so it has, it's related to the manna. So God's sending the manna. And so God establishes a Sabbath rhythm there. And then he codifies it in the giving of the law to Moses just a few weeks later in the Ten Commandments. That's the earliest that I see this law. <clears throat> the other thing that is really interesting, so the fourth commandment looks back to this creation week. We're going to look at that now, but just before we look at it, did you know that the fourth commandment also looks back to another historical moment which was unique, which was the deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt? And I don't think that in Deuteronomy 5, which we're going to look at, the intention of Moses, and when he's giving them the fourth commandment there is, every seven days go back to Egypt and come out again. Because, see, that's what we're doing when we're, when we're reading this creation ordinance into the Ten Commandments. We're saying, oh, well, we have to go back and sort of redo that seventh-day rest from creation over and over again. No, there was a unique historical moment on the seventh day of creation, which gives us a, a pattern or a reason for keeping Sabbath from the Ten Commandments onward. Uh, there is a historical reason. Israel came out of slavery in Egypt. And so every seven days they're supposed to think about that. So in fact, what we see in the Sabbath is that every seven days God wanted Israel to remember that God was their creator and their redeemer, their savior. I'll show you what I mean. Go back to Exodus 20 verse 11. So what, and this kind of is unknown to a lot of people because we're so familiar with the Ten Commandments in uh, Exodus 20. Uh, but what we're going to do after this is we're going to go to Deuteronomy 5. Did you know that there is the Ten Commandments given again in Deuteronomy 5? And it's very interesting to me that what we're about to read in verse 11 of Exodus 20 is not repeated in Deuteronomy 5. So look at verse 11, Exodus 20, verse 11. So remember it, the Sabbath, keep it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work. Seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And then it says, don't work and don't make anyone else work. Verse 11, now the rationale. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So it's just repeating. So Basically, what the fourth commandment here in Exodus 20 is saying, every seven days, I want you to stop working, just as God stopped working, and I want you to remember that God is your creator. Now, flip over to Deuteronomy 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You get the Ten Commandments again, and we're going to start in verse 12. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. This is also the fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So don't work and don't make anyone else work. All of that is more or less the same as what we read in Exodus 20. But then there is no mention of God's resting on the seventh day of creation. Look at verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's fascinating. It has nothing to do in Deuteronomy 5 with creation. Now, I know Exodus 20 is still there, but what this means, what my understanding of this is this. God is trying to set his people apart from the nations. And what he's saying is every seven days, I want you to rest from your labor as a gift from me to you. 
You're my people, and Jesus says this, right? Remember that, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is my gift to you. I'm going to give you a day of rest. And just as I am giving you a day to rest, and I'll look after you. I've proven it. I created you, and I saved you. I'll look after you. I'm going to give you this gift, this day of rest. And here's where the command comes in. And just as I am giving you a day of rest as a gift... I want you to give your servants and your livestock that same gift. And every seven days, rather than working, I want you to remember, I'm your creator, and I'm your savior. Therefore, although there is a relationship, clearly, between the fourth commandment and the seventh day of creation, I don't deny it. It's there. Exodus 20, verse 11. But I wonder if we've misunderstood the relationship. There is also a relationship between the fourth commandment and the exodus of Israel from Egypt. So you have to look at those two historical events as playing the same function of Sabbath keeping. Furthermore, there is no evidence of perpetual Sabbath keeping between the seventh day of creation and the institution of the fourth commandment at Mount Sinai. Therefore, let us conclude two things. Sabbath keeping is not mandated or legislated at creation. It's not a creation ordinance. <coughs> but Sabbath keeping is mandated and legislated for Israel in the Old Covenant. That's where it starts. So to summarize where we've been so far, this has been a lot of work, a lot of information, just sort of to figure out roads we don't want to go down. Now I'm just going to summarize that and then introduce the road we are going to go down. Then you can read the statement for yourself, send me your questions or Glenn and Blair, and then we'll get back to this on August 6th. But we're not quite done yet, so hold on. Re-engage, stretch if you need to. Summarize where we've been so far. Some would say that we should keep the Sabbath because it is a moral law. Some would say that we should keep the Sabbath because it's a creation ordinance. Neither of these arguments seem very persuasive to me for the reasons that I have given you. Well, what then should we do with the fourth commandment? Should we just ignore it? And see, this is where it gets very risky. And this is where I'm glad that I'm not too enthusiastic about the threefold law. Because I might be inclined to say, well, it's ceremonial. So we don't keep it. Just like we don't keep any of the other ceremonial laws. But I think that's dangerous for reasons that I've already said. Because of the way that Jesus treats the law, we cannot ignore the fourth commandment. We cannot just say, well, it's ceremonial, let's just get rid of it. We can't just pretend that it doesn't exist. Jesus has indicated to us that we must not abolish the law. He has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Therefore, we must keep the Sabbath, but we do not keep the shallow old covenant manifestation of the Sabbath, we have to ask the question, how does Jesus fill up the fourth commandment? And when we can understand how Jesus fills it up, then we are to keep the filled up version of the fourth commandment. So how did Jesus fill up the Sabbath? Uh, to answer this question, it's helpful to notice that there are three contexts for the Sabbath commandment. We've already looked at two of them. So two of them are kind of similar. They're both within the Ten Commandments. So you have Exodus 20. That's one context for the fourth commandment. You have Deuteronomy 5. That's a second context for the fourth commandment. And we've seen that just by reading those two together, we can make some decisions about the Sabbath and what it even meant in its old covenant context. But there's a third place where we find the fourth commandment. And that is in Leviticus 23. 
Uh, you can open there. I'm not going to read through it, but open it up and take a look at your headings and so on. What you get in Leviticus 23 is a list of holy days and times. In, in other words, it's a, it's a calendar, a list of, of, of times that God has set apart as holy. And, and one of the one of the units of time that God set apart as holy in the Old Covenant is the weekly Sabbath. But that's not the only one. And here's my challenge to Sabbath keepers. And by that, or Sabbatarians, or, or people who, who want to keep the Lord's Day much like the Old Covenant kept the old Lord's Day or the Sabbath. My challenge is, if, if we're going to do that with the weekly Sabbath, why don't we keep the rest of the times that God has set apart as holy? I, I just can't see how you can pluck that out. I know it's in the Ten Commandments, but it's also in Leviticus 23. And, and what, what we're going to see in Leviticus 23 is that God uses time to teach us about Jesus. God uses time in the Old Covenant to teach us about the gospel. So if we're going to keep the weekly Sabbath, let's keep the new moons. Let's keep the Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's keep the first fruits and Pentecost and trumpets and the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Booths and the Sabbath year and the Jubilee year. If we're going to keep the weekly Sabbath, and, and I, I sort of feel like Paul a little bit, and Paul does address this in Galatians, which we'll see on August 6th. Um, if you're going to keep the Sabbath, you've got to keep them all. If you just keep it in an old covenant sense. And, and, and Paul talks about circumcision and he says, if you're going to circumcise yourself, then, then just go all the way. If, you, if you're just going to keep a little bit, do it all. But that's not the gospel. That's not how we learn Christ. Nobody here would say, well, yeah, we, we need to be keeping Passover. We need to be keeping the Feast of Trumpets. We need to keep the Jubilee year. Now, I wouldn't mind Jubilee year. I'm almost 40. In 10 years, all my debts could be forgiven. That would be great. And maybe I'll borrow from you just the day before the Jubilee, and then you have to forgive my debts. But we don't keep that. Because we understand implicitly that the Jubilee year is, is looking forward to that great uh, forgiveness of debt that we owe God in the age to come. Like we, we get that. So God, we see that God has set apart days and times as holy in the Old Covenant, as anticipatory shadows of the salvific work of Jesus Christ. And that includes the weekly Sabbath. Let me just go through this list really quick. And I, I can't explain all this to you, but I just want you to get something to think about, and then you can ask me about it. Why did God institute offerings every new moon? Well, it was just a rhythmic reminder as they were watching. You know, some people worship the sun and the moon. So God says, well, no. Every time there's a new moon, I want you to make an offering to me. It's just really good protection for, for Israel. It was a way in which they could remember every month that they, they worship the creator and not the cre uh, creation. Passover. Passover is uh, fulfilled by the crucifixion of Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. The unleavened bread is fulfilled in the burial of Jesus. He, he takes our leaven and he buries it. Uh, the first fruits are, is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. Pentecost, which was that fe feast where they celebrated arriving on Sinai and the receiving of the law, is fulfilled when the Holy Spirit comes down and writes the law on our hearts. Feast of trumpets will be fulfilled when Jesus returns at the sound of the last trumpet. Uh, the day of atonement will be fulfilled when the remnant of Israel sees the returned Christ in all of his glory and en masse converts and is atoned for. The feast of booths where you sleep out in tents to remember that God journeyed with you in the wilderness will be fulfilled either, and this depends on your biblical theology, either in the millennial kingdom when we dwell with Jesus before the final judgment, or if there is no millennium, uh, in the new heavens and new earth where we dwell with God. The Sabbath year, every seven years, you're supposed to allow your, your land to lie fallow without planting it. That is looking forward to eschatological rest. 
trusting in God for that rest. And the Jubilee year, as I already said, is that eschatological forgiveness of our debts. So everything, everything points to the work of Christ and the gospel. And so what I've just done is I've showed you how Jesus fills up all of those. Well, what about the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath? Well, the Ten Commandments helps us to answer this. The weekly Sabbath, well, it, there's two things that Jesus does when he fills it up. The weekly Sabbath, number one, points forward to the new creation by reminding us of the original creation. So, the fullness of the Sabbath, remember in Exodus 20, verse 11, I want you to keep the Sabbath. I want you to remember that I'm your creator. Jesus fills that up when he says, I am making all things new. So what we need to remember is that Jesus is making all things new, and he's already started. Jesus has initiated the new creation. How did he do this? This is, this is so awesome. Jesus died on a particular day of the week. What day? Friday? Which is what day of creation? Day six? What did God create on day six? Humanity. Jesus is making humanity new on day six by dying for the sin of humanity. And then he is buried on what day? Day seven, the Sabbath. Jesus literally rests in paradise on the seventh day, thus fulfilling the Sabbath. And Jesus comes back to life on the third day, which is what day? Day one. Thus inaugurating the new creation. You see, the new creation has already started. It started on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, Jesus is already in his new creation body, which means we are already in the eschatological age. There's already a man who is living in the new creation. He's already living in the new created order. And so the new creation has already started and so, and when we put our faith in Jesus, we are also already living in the new creation. We are already made to be new creatures in Christ. We are already in our Sabbath rest, which is Christ. We already see him as our, our creator and our re-creator. Now, the weekly Sabbath also points forward to humanity's deliverance from slavery to sin. How? By looking back to Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So that's the Deuteronomy 5.15. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And when we apply his blood to our lives by faith, we are liberated, we are set free from our sin so that we are now free. That's how Jesus fills up the fourth commandment, by bringing about a new creation and delivering us from slavery, not in Egypt, but from sin. Thus, the weekly Sabbath observance in the old covenant is fulfilled by the new covenant work of Jesus and our deliverance from slavery to sin by Jesus, which means it's already accomplished. And I just want to conclude with this. And then we'll sing. Therefore, there are two ways that we keep the fourth commandment in the new covenant. Number one, we keep the Sabbath by participating in the new creation in Christ. In other words, we rest in Christ. And I don't want to just rest in Christ one day out of seven. I rest in Christ seven days of the week. I am a new creature in Christ seven days of the week. I am united with Christ seven days of the week. We are united with Christ always. 
He is the first fruits of the new creation. Now, of course, there's this not yet aspect, right? We look forward to our resurrection from the dead when it will all be brought to consummation. Nevertheless, we, we keep the fourth commandment by resting in Christ. Secondly, we keep the second commandment, or the fourth commandment, sorry, by being freed from sin. We are already free from sin. We are united with Christ, so we are freed from sin, even though we are not yet totally free of our sin nature. So we do wrestle with our sin nature, but we are already free from sin. It has no power over us. Therefore, how do you keep the Sabbath? Live out of your new nature by being united with Christ and living with Him and for Him. Now this leaves one final question. Do we need to set apart one day in seven to keep the fourth commandment? No, we don't. We have freedom in Christ to recognize all days as the same because we're united with Him and He is in the perfection of Sabbath rest. And we're united with Him. Therefore, we're already there even while I recognize that we're not yet enjoying the fullness of being there. But we're already there. And, and to require Sabbath keeping, like requiring circumcision, is to say that our salvation is dependent on Jesus plus something else, which is not true. We are already, in some senses, raised up with Christ in the heavenly places. We are in Him. And I don't want to step out of Him for six days of the week just to step back into him for one day. I rest in Christ. So no, we do not have to keep the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment was, was anticipatory of that which we have by grace through faith in Christ already now. At the same time, we also have freedom in Christ to set apart some days as distinct from others. So one thing we're not saying is that you must treat every day the same. Uh, there is freedom for you. If you want to set apart one day for your family to do something different, if, if you want to treat one day and seven as different, that is, is fine. That is your liberty to do. But it's not required. And the elders of this church will not require you to do that. And we should not require it of one another because we have the fullness in Christ. And to require it of one another is to say that Jesus is not enough. And the gospel is not Jesus plus Sabbath keeping. It just is not. Therefore, no one who esteems one day as better than another is to pass judgment on those who don't. Now for the homework. In three weeks' time, we will look at three New Testament passages and then we'll have a Q&A. I want you to read these passages. I want you to pick this up and read it. I want you to talk about it. I want you to send us questions. Here are the three uh, passages of Scripture I want you to read. Romans 14, verses 5 to 12. I'll repeat them uh, after. Galatians 4, 8 to 12. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Let me give those to you again. Romans 14, 5 to 12. Galatians 4, 8 to 12. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Between now and August 6th, read those passages. Study the elder's statement. Study the scriptures for yourself. Send us questions and come back on August 6th. And then we will uh, read these passages, learn from them, and then participate in the Q&A. And just to end our time, I want to read you the one paragraph summary statement that the elders have put together, then I'm going to pray. Jesus is the substance of all the fullness of the old covenant, including all holy times. 
Therefore, the practical observance of weekly Sabbaths, new moons, annual feasts, Sabbath years and Jubilee years is no longer binding on new covenant believers. We have it all in Christ. Let's not trade all that we have for something less. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for us as we explore this topic. I know it's controversial. It can be challenging for us to get our our minds around uh, the full scope of this issue. So I pray for us. I pray for unity as we explore this together. I pray that we might have good, healthy dialogue. uh, And that for those who are are challenged and wrestling with it, that they would have the freedom here uh, to, to be challenged and to challenge and to take their time Uh, to feel comfortable here, maybe not agreeing with everything that was spoken this morning. Lord, I do pray that you would bring us to to a place of, of unity on this issue, even where we may not come to full agreement. We thank you, Lord, that you are our creator and our savior, and that all of that work uh, has been accomplished in Christ, and we are in him, and he is in us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.